1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. In just a moment, we are going to kick off a National Progressive Town Hall meeting with Congressman Mark Bokan. I just want to fill you in on what's coming up in the rest of the show here. Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. How will American economics... He's a professor of economics, of course. How will American economics change if Donald Trump or someone like him takes the White House and basically ends what's left of democracy? How do fascist economies work? What happens first, second, third? We'll get into that. Also, will America look the other way on the GOP's new election police in 1964? They rolled out Operation Eagle Eye as a major voter suppression effort nationwide. William Rehnquist was was a leader of this in Arizona, the guy who later gave George Bush the White House in 2000. They are rebooting it. Ron DeSantis is bringing this back to Florida. Texas is doing the same. It's amazing. I'll tell you all about that. Also, the plans to close all but one polling place in a rural Georgia county. Six out of seven, they're going to close, so you're going to have to travel 20 miles to vote do democrats have a plan b strategy to circumvent the voting rights filibuster we'll get into that but first congressman mark Pocan is with us congressman pokan represents the second district of wisconsin in the u.s house of representatives he's the former co-chair of the congressional progressive caucus he's on the appropriate and also a member now he's on the appropriations education and labor committees in the house pokan.house.gov is his website you can tweet him at rep mark Congressman Pocan, welcome back to the program. First off, I'm curious your thoughts on what's going on in the Senate right now and whether this uh, talking filibuster strategy has any chance at all.
2: I think that's what we're all going to find out, Tom. Great to be with you and your listeners I just was on a, a press availability with Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, and she just got asked that question, and I had to hop off to be here with you all, so I didn't get a chance to hear her exact answer, but, you know, this morning we had a Democratic caucus meeting in the House, and, you know, they Chuck Schumer was saying, he would, you know, proposing uh, every senator could speak twice. That's 200 speeches, you know, giving them every possible opportunity to do this and do the right thing, because we have to tackle these challenges with 500 laws in 49 states trying to make it harder for people to vote. And 34 of them have become law, Tom, in about, I think, 19 states. So, you know, it really is something we've got to address, and we do it before November, and uh, you know, unfortunately, the Republicans are, are following lockstep with whatever Donald Trump still wants, uh, whether it be on the fantasy of the election results where he lost by. One of the largest margins or the largest margin in American history, 7 million votes, uh, or uh, the fact that there's somehow this voter fraud that uh, even in Wisconsin, our nonpartisan professional agencies have said at most uh, they could find maybe 35 instances in the entire state of Wisconsin uh, in November of 2020.
1: Yeah, and I'm willing to bet more than half of voted for, for Trump. <laughs> what else is on your uh, on your radar screen here? Now, you know, typically, I I just open it up and throw it to you, saying, you know, what are you paying attention yeah. to? What's, what's going on?
2: Um, I mean, absolutely, voting rights, you know, we're waiting right now for the Senate to act on two things right in the House. One is voting rights, two is uh, if they can give us some form of a Build Back Better bill to finish the president's agenda that he had in the American Rescue Plan and the infrastructure bill. We need this third component to really help as many people as possible. So those are the two things that we're really waiting on the most. We've had a fairly light week in the House last week and this week because we're ready to act uh, when the Senate does. But uh, uh, we also are, you know, as someone who serves on the Appropriations Committee, we have until February 18th to try to get our budget done. I'd rather not see us kick the can again. Rosa Deloro, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, is doing a wonderful job in trying to get that done. So there's a lot happening, even though uh, I think right now most eyes are focused on the voting rights legislation.
1: I'm curious, assuming that the voting rights legislation goes down in flames, um, and we're seeing already, you know, Republicans uh... down in georgia using this new law that you know taking over election boards firing all the black people on the assumption that they must be democrats and then uh... like in lincoln county which is a fairly large county in georgia uh... they just closed six out of the seven voting uh... locations in that county and and the the one that they're leaving open is kind of in the center of the whitest town in the county as as far as i can tell and from having lived in georgia my recollection if we are in a situation where they absolutely have succeeded and they put these voter restrictions uh, and and they continue to be in place all around the country and they continue purging hundreds of thousands millions of people off the voting rolls which seems like to me frankly the most insidious part of the whole thing because you don't even know until you show up to vote um in many cases uh what are your thoughts on the possibility that this might produce a backlash in 2022 and 2024 this is what i'm re- reading on the conservative websites right look out there's a backlash coming there's even there are even more you know the people who, that were trying to suppress the vote they're going to show up uh or do you think that the republicans will be successful what does this auger for the future
2: yeah i think the republicans have a, a tough message on one hand they're saying there's voter fraud that everyone is seeing doesn't exist and that all these laws are really just trying to be politicians picking their voters rather than the other way around along with gerrymandering also coming up this this election cycle um, but also by saying that your vote doesn't count uh, are they telling their own supporters? To not bother to come out. So I think they've got a confusing message, and I don't think their supporters. Uh like being confused because much of their life, I believe, is. Uh, and if you give them this, you're you're going to be potentially taking a risk. It's much like Donald Trump now when he talks about vaccinations and getting booed uh, by the supporters, the very people that he created this fervor uh, with. You know, at some point, you can create the Frankenstein monster, but you can't continue to control it. And I think the Republicans are in a really tough spot on their messaging and voting.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Well, let's pick up some phone calls here. Sure. Nancy in Woodland, California. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan.
3: Hi. Um, yeah, I was calling about this position of parliamentarian. I'd never heard of it until last year, and, I'm, and my understanding is it's a non-elected position, and this person has the ability to change proposed legislation. So, I, how did this position come about? How long is this person in this position? And can this position be abolished? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to me. This is even an elected person who's deciding what's going to be in our legislation. Thank you.
2: Yes. Let me answer it this way, because often, you know, no one's ever heard of it because the parliamentarian doesn't have that much to say. The reason the parliamentarian right now is so significant is because we are trying to do things under the rules of reconciliation. That is a process that gets around the filibuster for fiscal matters and fiscal matters only. That requires a simple majority. So what the parliamentarian is doing is determining whether something is predominantly a fiscal issue, or are we trying to slip uh, a larger policy change in And instead, that wouldn't conform to the rules. So that's what a parliamentarian should do. The problem is, you know, at some point, you know, you don't elect parliamentarians, you elect your representatives. We ultimately have to speak for our constituents and uh, we should be able to uh, overrule the parliamentarian, which... You can, but that means they have to take those actions. So I think the only reason it's significant, uh, just so you know, Nancy, is because it's the rules of how we do reconciliation uh, that requires a simple majority.
1: I'm curious, how does this play out when, I mean, is there a political theater of some sort that the Democrats could stage around, for example, just Lincoln County, Georgia? You know, you've got this one county where the Republicans passed this law that allowed them to take over the election board, they did it, and now they're shutting down six out of seven voting locations in the county. There's a county that's 29% black. Uh, Most of that is rural. And and, uh, I mean, this is just, it doesn't get more blatant than this.
2: Well, and I think what people have to remember, and I think what's so significant, Tom, is, you know, right now it may be they're targeting um, people they think are Democrats, right? after american voters, uh, younger voters, and, and some senior citizens. But, you know, as we know in history, it doesn't mean the group that you're in might not be the next to be attacked when you have people who operate – on an autocratic level, that they don't think they have to follow majoritarian rules like we do with elections and want to somehow change rules, you know, you could be the next person on that chopping block. You, uh, your your spouse, uh, your family, your job uh, could be at risk. And that's why we have to care because in a democracy, the only thing that we assuredly have that puts us on an equal footing, uh, whether it be the Koch brothers or Bill Gates uh, or you or me or any listener is we have one vote. And anytime you make it harder for people to be able to vote, you take away our voice and our participation in democracy. So that's why it's so very important And these attacks, I mean, to say you can't hand someone water in line to vote in Georgia clearly is an illogical law, but it's to make fewer people be able to vote. If you're thirsty, uh, you have to leave. Like, it's ridiculous. And uh, the fact that we know... So well that certain polling places especially where people of color vote the waiting is so much more significant to vote than in other areas uh, these are matters that make our democracy uh, at risk and that's why it should be important and just to remember that you could be the next person in line uh, for whatever way Donald Trump his whims go uh, and that's why you should care and why it matters and what the Senate does in the next step Tom I don't have an exact answer from the updates I got as early as this morning uh but right now i think they're they're hoping that this filibuster will show that if people don't stay on the floor they can still try to call votes and uh we'll we'll see what happens through this process
1: yeah i'm with you uh and and you know hopefully even if they're not successful now there uh, enough publicity is being generated around this that it will produce outrage and people will register to vote and people will show up i mean i I'm getting a sense that people are seriously pissed off about what's going on, and, and you know we're looking now at primary challenges for Cinnamon Mansion. Uh, Manchin came out this morning and said, "I, you know, I've been ha- I've been primary challenged every election of my life. I don't care, bring it on." Um, but I think that there's something bigger going on here. Is that your sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the only we're we're already fighting special interests in Washington D.C. We're fighting districts that are uh, written by politicians to benefit themselves. You know, the one thing, the great equalizer is that vote, and I think if you go after that, people will be outraged, rightfully so.
1: Yeah, and. and- and they've been going after it since 1964 with Operation Eagle Eye. I mean, that's, that's when we began to see, well, it was really the '68 election after the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act where we started to see these long, long lines in minority neighborhoods in particular. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello to both.
3: Thank you. I'm one of those angry people. And I just want to say... Um, a representative you were they were out there the activists being arrested while the senators were on the floor making the case, right, but that didn't get much coverage time, but they were out there being arrested once yep. again, trying to do what's right. so let me ask you, I heard of Senator Warren, and she just killed it. She laid out what was going on. She talked about the court cases and the rulings and the Supreme Court. I mean, she was eloquent and laid everything out. So I'm asking you, representative, the pressure on mansion and cinema, particularly cinema. Is anyone going to the LGBTQ community and asking them to apply pressure on her? And the reason I'm asking you that is because in the black community time, They're always talking about solidarity with us. where this is the time we need all of those organizations to apply as much pressure as possible. I understand that uh, some of the women's organizations, Emily List, I think said that they would endorse her. But I'm saying what leverage do we need to use? And, Tom, I know you don't like this comment. This is just my opinion. I'm all about disrupting the flow of money, and that means a boycott. If the Republicans don't do us right, we have to use the tools we have available. And I have called Romney, tried to put in a call to Susan Collins. You know, sometimes it's difficult. Where are they? Is Biden trying to talk to them, to convince them?
1: Pam, let's get the answer, okay? Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, Pam, I think there is an enormous amount of pressure, as there should be, on any Democratic senator that's not helping advance voting rights legislation you can always say yes i'm a sponsor because every democrats a sponsor of the joe Manchin's bill But if you're not willing to actually get it done, you absolutely should have pressure. And and trust me, there is in both of those states. And I think the person who's more uh, susceptible to it is is Senator Sinema, given that, uh, you know, I think Ruben Gallego is is, uh, strongly looking at a challenge, and that's got to be something that's front of mind uh, for her. But, you know, it was her speech we heard last week. I don't know how the best, other than your constituents, to convince anyone To do the right thing, and because they're the people who elect you, and if you don't care what your constituents say, well, then they won't care if you're their elected official, right? And I think that's the real best pressure. It has to come from Arizona. It has to come from West Virginia. It has to come from any district where someone is out of step. So, Pam, there absolutely is pressure on them right now. The problem is, as you know, she's not up for another three years, and I think she knows that. Uh, I've often said political years are like dog years, so she's also taking that into consideration. But uh, at the same time, um, you know, as a Democrat, we should be standing for the Democratic Uh, agenda and for the American people and your constituents, and voting rights should supersede everything, and anyone who's not on board uh, is clearly going to get pressure.
1: You know, I would argue that gay rights, uh, particularly gay marriage rights, are on the block as well here. Uh, To Pam's question about the gay community, or the LGBTQ community. Um, Yeah,
2: what's interesting is I noticed when um, Senator Sinema gave that last speech, it appeared to be that she was wearing a cross, and given that she's, um, I think, the, the first member of Congress to say she's not religious even that was very unique and stood out so i really don't know other than i think with any elected official the best way to convince them is their constituents because that's their bosses i mean sometimes people outside the the districts aren't going to have the same influence although i think that's a whole other conversation when it comes to money and politics which i know we've had many times
1: yeah there you go Congressman, I had meant to ask you a couple of weeks ago, uh, taking uh, host's privilege here uh, to ask a question. You had gone to Israel, and, and I believe you got as far as Gaza. I have been a longtime advocate for a two-state solution and, and uh, you know, the, uh, characterized Gaza as an open-air prison. And, and uh, I, I just don't think apartheid is going gonna, is gonna to work over the long term uh, in that region. Uh, did you want to speak at all to that trip and, and uh, share any observations or thoughts with us?
2: Boy, I, I could do an hour with you. Let me share it, it this way, Tom. Um, this is my third trip to uh, the region, uh, both to Israel and Palestine. Um, you know, I, I came back. One, the good news is Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu are gone, right? That okay. That's a positive But the the negative, I guess, is, you know, the Palestinian Authority is weak, um, not really responsive, I think, to what's going on in many ways uh, with the demolitions in East Jerusalem and what's going on, especially among younger Palestinians. And uh, the Israeli coalition, while it's a very diverse coalition and it passed a budget, I think some of the bigger geopolitical issues, like one state versus two state, is very hard with that fragile coalition. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to happen so that we can actually have human rights for everyone there. And Gaza, without question, um, I think it was described to me as the conditions are just miserable enough that you can exist. uh, And and that's what the conditions are there. And there's no question we need to do more. I was turned down once again, to going into Gaza. It's my second time I've been turned down. They didn't turn us officially down until after we got back. But I got the Admiral Costello, remember the old who's on first, what's on mm-hmm. second, I don't know, who's on third base routine. Uh, defense said it was up to foreign ministry whether we could go. Foreign ministry said it was up to defense. I even asked the prime minister himself, and then he pushed it back to the foreign minister. And by the time we left, uh, without being able to enter Gaza to see what's exactly happening on the ground we were then later rejected because we were members of congress and parliament in europe aren't allowed uh we've got some language that we're trying to deal with that right now in appropriations so that they can't do that if they're receiving funds but you know it's a troubling time because there there's still a lot of work we have to have to have real peace and human rights in the region
1: yeah i think that falls into the category of what is it that you're hiding Anyhow, uh, Congressman, thank you. Sharon, in Tucson, Arizona, you're on the air with Representative Pocan.
3: Yes, good morning, Tom. Good morning, Congressman. I'm speaking as an Arizona voter. And during this past summer, starting, I guess, June, July, I contacted or I sent uh, an email to Senator Sinema's office, totally ignored. And one month later, I tried her. I did both the Phoenix office and then the Tucson office, ignored. So I said, okay, it's time to put out a stamp and an envelope and send it to her. That, too, was ignored. What do we do when we have a senator that totally ignores us?
2: Well, in general, I'm going to say I won't speak to any specific senator. If your elected officials aren't responding to you, it's time for new elected officials. Um, I think that's the general response. You know, the other thing I would say, and this is hard because of COVID, the last two years have been very difficult. But, you know, Tom and I have had this conversation over the years quite often. I think town halls are some of the best things that your elect officials have to do uh, in order to stay connected to constituents and have face-to-face conversations. And that's a way you can really get around maybe some of the ways that they don't respond to you. So if you know uh, a representative or a senator is going to be somewhere um, showing up to those, it, it takes a lot more commitment out of you to be able to do that. And I know that that's not fair. But if they're not responding through either emails or calls, I guess that would be the second thing is if you're emailing maybe try a different mode of communication, a call can be pretty immediate, and uh, you know, just keep the pressure on that way.
1: Amy in Madison, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Representative Pocan.
3: Oh, hi, Congressman Pocan. Remember you used to believe in an amendment to the Constitution to make voting a right? Could we do that if that counts?
2: Yeah, Amy, again, the second constituent today, Tom, this is great. Um, And that was a bill that we had introduced, a constitutional right to vote, because uh, believe it or not, there's not an explicit right to vote in our Constitution. We talk about discrimination in voting. We've talked to many people from the Brennan uh, Center and others about this, and um, that would make it so that you don't have to play whack-a-mole by fighting every single state. But so would standards uh, that we're trying to do in in the bills that right now are before the Senate. The difficulty, Amy, is a constitutional amendment has a much higher threshold to actually make become law. It would take a lot longer. Yes, it would be the platinum standard. um, But if we can't even get this done right now with the House and Senate, I think it would be very difficult to get a constitutional amendment. So I'm not giving up. I still think that's the best way to holistically address this. Right now, we've got to address things that we're in place by November so that people's voices are heard through their votes, and uh, that is the only way we can have the republic that
1: we have. Sarah, in Chicago. Sarah, you're on the air with Representative Pocan.
3: Yes, hello, Tom and uh, Representative Pocan. I'm just asking a quick question, I'm political all my life, but if the voting rights bill passes, will it override what the states are doing, the evil things they're doing to people who are? not being allowed to vote, everything that they're closing. I'm a person with a disability. Um, I luckily live in a place outside of Chicago where I don't have to wait in line, but I'm thinking of the people who do have to wait in line. I couldn't stand very long to wait in line, but people out in the rural places have to. So what would happen?
2: Sure. Sarah, so I mean, it would have a tremendous, I think, impact in that you would have some standards, essentially, from the federal level, so you can't have... What we're doing now, which is playing whack-a-mole with every state or locality that changes the law and makes it harder for people to vote. You know, those 500 laws that have been introduced in 49 states, um, of which 34 have already become law this year, or up to now. We, We really have to have this passed so that we can have those standards in place and not allow them to do everything they're doing to make it harder for people to have their voices heard. So it would have a tremendous impact. That's why the fight is as, as big as it is. And, um, you know, you would think Republicans used to support this. I mean, it used to be the Voting Rights Act was something that Republicans, many Republicans were strongly supportive of. Right now, I don't know if it's because uh, they want to manipulate elections or because they're so afraid of Donald Trump, but clearly there's been a significant
1: change just in recent years. Earl in Hyde Park, Illinois, you're on the air with Representative Pocan.
4: Uh, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. and Hi, Congressman. Why is it that we allow our callers and uh, people that uh, lambast uh, President Biden for not getting anything done as far as the, uh, you know, what you was saying, voting rights and everything? Well, we should be also pointing out that the uh, public also has an obligation to elect enough progressive uh, representatives, even in the House and in the Senate, to get the job done. Mansion and cinema would not be a problem if we had more progressive people in, in the Congress, and we wouldn't be having this battle. So we're not doing enough as far as our obligation, I think, to elect the proper amount of people to pass legislation to get it done. And after, you know, here's the final part of it, and after the Republicans get all of this stuff passed and, and uh, and instituted before the election, it's going to even be harder because now we've got to go to court to try to reverse some of the stuff that's going to be done. And with uh, Trump putting so many people on the court, we saw what's happening with the Supreme Court. We're going to have it on the lower court levels, too. So thank you for taking my call. And I, I just wish that we would fight back and put it in the proper perspective. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Oop.
1: Thank you. I, I cut him off just a little earlier there. Sorry. Congressman.
2: No problem. I, I think Earl, well said. Although I would also mention we should be highlighting that not a single Republican is supporting these changes. Uh, so instead of focusing on two Democrats that absolutely should be uh, their sponsors of the bill, all fifty senators are sponsors of the Voting Rights Bill uh, that they're they're talking about. But the fact that a, a few don't want to change the rules to make sure that they can actually become law—that is debate. But let's also remember that fifty Republican senators and every single I believe Republican member of the house is not a sponsor of these bills and and that's significant and then on top of that you're right i mean we just really the, the way we fight back is with our our vote votes and that's why they're trying to do what they're doing we have to come back even stronger and be even more committed to getting rid of those who don't think enough of us to actually respect our voices which is our which is our votes and uh i, I hear what you're saying earl
1: Bill in Madison, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Representative Pocan.
5: Hi,
2: guys. Thanks for
5: taking my call. Um, I
2: remember when
5: I used to be able to uh, click a box on my taxes which said uh, I wanted to put some money towards federal campaigns. Why is it not possible for um, us to have a box that we can click that says that you voted and get a tax break for that, which would put it into a financial uh, category which would be able to get through reconciliation and It's like Obamacare was a tax situation, which is how they got that in. Why can't we do that with this voting rights? It would would bypass the filibuster. We could use reconciliation.
2: Yeah, Bill, uh, first of all, you're from the district. Thanks for calling in. Um, It's not necessarily that simple, because if you could take anything and say it's fiscal, uh, then it works with reconciliation. That's where the problem comes in. Earlier we talked about with the parliamentarian. They can say this isn't predominantly fiscal. It's not really about of x-dollar tax break it's really about something else and then you could have that challenge and that may not allow you to get around the fifty votes look i don't know all the strategies the senate's looking at i was on a call this morning with tammy baldwin and she uh, was asked that question is i had to get off to be on here today but i hope that they're looking at everything possible because you shouldn't have one or two people holding up something as important as voting rights and right now that's appearing to be what we have
1: yeah it's it's very much what we have wow. Okay, uh, Lee in Orlando. Lee, got a quick one, please?
2: Yes, I got a quick one. As
5: a black American, um, it has always bothered me why my right to vote has to be voted on every few years by a group of white men who may not have my best interests at heart. So as long as that is the case, isn't our freedom an illusion? Why can't we get
2: to perpetual voting rights? I think, Lee, what you bring up is is something that a lot of people talk about. We need to have more people of color elected. We need to have more women elected. We need to have more uh, diversity in every elected body because you're right. It's all too often older white men, older white wealthy men. I mean, half of my colleagues are millionaires. Half of America is not millionaires. That's not representative. We need to get more people like you and me, quite honestly, to run for office, who represents some of the diversity of this country, so we have a seat at the table.
1: Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always, it always, always great having you on the program. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. We'll be back with more of our program in just a moment. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program. We're going to dig into the election police coming to a town near you. Seriously.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
1: On the line with us, our old friend, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, professor of economics, co-founder of democracy at work.info, author of numerous books, including most recently, The Sickness Is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself democracywork.info, of course, his website, also rdwolfwith fscom You can tweet him at ProfWolf with two Fs. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm curious, there's all this talk about uh, Donald Trump, you know, the, the elections getting rigged and Donald Trump or somebody like him, a, a neo-fascist Republican. Um, You know, a Tom Cotton, a Josh Hawley, a Ron DeSantis becoming president in 2024 and effectively ending the American experiment of democracy or what's left of it and uh, replacing it with kind of neo-fascist strongman economics that would make America look more like Hungary or Russia or or perhaps uh, the Philippines. Uh, what would that mean? What What does that look like from an economist's point of view? How How what, How How different are the economy, the economics of of uh, modern day fascism or authoritarianism from the economics of what we might call democracy, and uh, and what will it mean for the average person?
6: Well, I think you know it's unfortunately a question whose time has come, and that and you're right to ask it. Um, there's two ways to look at this the potential of what might happen and then a little bit of a look at what has happened over recent years when uh, bolsonaro in brazil or uh... the philippines or turkey or modi in india or even boris johnson in england uh... what those have amounted to in terms of economic policy and i think the remarkable thing is not much in other words, these are people who are specialists in political theater. They, they cash in on the mass of people who are justifiably angry at what has been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, and above all, the massive transfer of wealth. From the middle and the bottom to the folks at the top, that is the number one issue. They say and do absolutely nothing to stop it, let alone to reverse it. Uh, What they do specialize in is what I think we call in this country culture wars, or in other places, cash in on immigrant scapegoating or religious controversies or secondary issues in people's mind that become primary because you're not allowed in these societies to talk about the basic issue. So I think the answer is mostly it's marginal. If a, if a Trump type got, got elected here, there's no reason to believe that he would do any or she would do anything different from what Trump did. Lots of theater, lots of noise, lots of posturing. But in the end, the, you know, the economic development of this country went on, the inequality got worse, the instability got worse. And my guess is these are not people who ever figured out what the problems in economics are. They've never shown the slightest courage in confronting the problem of a system that doesn't work. So they will make adjustments here and there. Uh, When I thought to myself how to answer your question, the, the only area I thought might come out is that Mr. Trump and people like him enjoy being naughty around ecological questions. So they would, you know, encourage coal or encourage fossil fuels or make light of ecological problems and give maybe that those industries a bit of a boost. But in the larger picture of our society, other than that one ecological question, my guess is much more uh, drama much more noise, but the underlying economic problems we have will continue to get worse. That is what happened in Brazil or India. And in the end, by the way, these folks end up usually like Trump did here and like Boris Johnson is doing literally as we speak in England, they self-destruct in the theatric because underlying change hasn't happened, and that's in the end what got them in.
1: When I was writing The the Hidden History of American Oligarchy, I did a deep dive into uh, Viktor Orban, the the, the guy who's running Hungary right now. Um, He has, uh, over the last 10 years, flipped Hungary from being a a NATO member, a member of the European Union, a full-blown functioning democracy, into a kind of Russia-like autocracy. And one of the first things he did when he took power was to use the power of the state to essentially drive small businesses, to harass small businesses, you know, uh, long extended tax audits, uh, personal attacks, um, basically uh, forcing small businesses to sell out to to uh, Orban's cronies. He had a he has he had a kind of a kitchen cabinet like Reagan had of, of big business guys around him. Uh, they are all now fabulously rich. They started out just being you know Hungary's modestly rich, or and now that now and, and so most all of the small business now in hungary that has any value at all has been sucked up with the connivance of the state by these oligarchs it has shifted the you know by shifting the the economic power or the political power they've shifted the economic power and now it's become a self-reinforcing loop where these people are openly, you know, your, your telephone company supports Orban and will listen in on your calls. Your media is now all owned by Orban allies. Stores and department stores and lar- are o- not only owned by Orban allies, but have big pictures of him in the stores like they used to do with Stalin. Um, this kind of thing. Would you expect that sort of thing to happen here if, if somebody like Trump got, uh, got the White House again and had really serious control over things like this?
6: Under one set of circumstances, that could happen here, and it's the same set that produced this in Hungary. If you have a guy like that come in, if you have someone come in who comes in by the skin of his teeth, uh, by hook or by crook, who is very worried that the political base he has is not strong enough to sustain him then the only way he can be secure is to provide uh, something to at least a portion of the society that's already powerful that is so attractive to them that they will in turn give him the political support he wants. And what Orban did is he found that. He found that in the cronies, you call them, quite rightly. He found that in big business uh, that was emerging after the, the Hungarians were no longer part of the Eastern European bloc there. He said to them, I can help you become a dominant monopolizing force here. We can do it at the expense of the small businesses, but you have to fund me. I will provide the big political theater. And in Hungary's case, it was anti-immigration that did it. Uh, I'll get the mass of people at least for a while. That'll be enough time for me to make you super rich and you fund me. Could that happen here? Yes. If someone got in who knew clearly that the mass of the American people had little patience, even if he got voted in or she got voted in, and they had to make a big effort to build a political base, Yeah, they would offer to do for the oil companies or for uh, high tech or whatever sectors they found uh, friendly exactly what was done for Orbán. They would extinguish others fund those who in turn fund them, and you get the kind of uh, what is called in many parts of the world crony capitalism uh, as the result, not that we don't already have it here, but it would be a much sharper uh, form of that, and the ins would become very wealthy, and the outs would face a kind of slow death, so long as that kind of thing stayed in power.
1: Makes perfect sense. Professor Richard Wolff, thank you so much for dropping by, Professor. It's always great talking with you.
6: Same here, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So I wanted to share with you, uh, A, it's the rant that I wrote today for HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Will America Look the Other Way on on the GOP's New Election Police? But this larger issue... There's a difference between voter fraud and election fraud. Voter fraud is where individual voters try to do things that are fraudulent, like voting their dead spouse or um, as that Republican did down in Georgia or uh, voting in two different states, as several Republicans did voting for Donald Trump down in Florida when they also had homes in other states and they voted in those other states. That's voter fraud there has never, in my lifetime, I mean, it may well be that there were stuffed ballot boxes back in the in the nineteenth century that you know, but certainly in the in the in the years I've been on this planet, there has never been an election that has been altered as a result of voter fraud. So, you know, it's really an inconsequential thing. But there is this thing called election fraud. And election fraud is where the mechanism of the election itself is rigged so that the outcome is essentially fraudulent. I mean, you know, for example, consider in 1964, this is when the modern-day Republican election fraud strategy began in 1964. And Democrats need to be calling it that, election fraud. In 1964, in Mississippi, 35 and a half percent of all the citizens of Mississippi were black, yet only four percent had been able to successfully register to vote. In Alabama, the Alabama's 26% black, only 7% of Alabama voter, black voters were registered to vote. In South Carolina, it was nearly one-third black, 29.2%. Only 9% of that state's African Americans could successfully, successfully register to vote. Alabama, 26% black, but the white power structure made sure that only 7% of African Americans in Alabama could vote. So how could you say that any election... Where only 4.3 percent of 35 percent of your citizens, more than a third of your citizens, only four percent of them were even allowed to vote, much less actually did. How could you call that a free and fair election? It's not. It's a fraudulent election. These were fraudulent elections that were being held in the 1960s, and the Republicans wanted to keep it that way. So in 1964, when Barry Goldwater was running against uh, uh, Hubert, excuse me, against Lyndon Johnson. For president of the united states the new york times noted now this is one week before the election this is october 30th 1964. i am reading to you from the new york times it's in my article i quoted my article quote republican officials have begun a massive campaign to prevent vote fraud in the election next tuesday a move that has caused democrats to themselves cry fraud the republican plan operation eagle eye is designed, according to party officials, to prevent Democrats from, quote, stealing the 1964 election. Republicans charge that the election was stolen in 1960. The Democratic National Chairman, John M. Bailey, has criticized the Republican program as, quote, a program of voter intimidation, end quote. He has sent a protest to all 50 state governors and has alerted Democratic Party officials throughout the country to be on their guard. There is no doubt in my mind, Mr. Bailey wrote the state chairman yesterday, that this program is a serious threat to democracy as well as to the democratic victory on November 3rd, 1964. Operation Eagle Eye was birthed in the 64 election by the Goldwater guys. William Rehnquist was running the the Arizona branch of it. Um, One reporter was you know, uh, describing what happened. He said, "Uh, Rehnquist knew the law and he applied it with the precision of a swordsman. He sat at the Bethune School. This was a polling place brimming with black citizens and quizzed voters ad nauseum about where they were from, how long they'd lived there, every question in the book. And then a passage of the Constitution was read to them and people were ordered to interpret it to prove they had the language skills necessary to vote. This is what happened in 64. The election police. Which brings us to today's news out of Florida, which is that the, uh, well, this is from the Washington Post, quote, uh, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is asking the GOP control legislature to allocate nearly $6 million to hire 52 people to quote, investigate, detect, apprehend and arrest anyone for an alleged violation of election laws, end quote. They would be stationed at unspecified field offices throughout the state and act on tips from government officials or any other person, end quote. Right. Meanwhile, Common Cause uh, leaked a document uh, that in Harris County, the Republican, this is uh, Houston, I believe, that the uh, Republican officials are, quote, uh, trying to, quote, build an army of 10,000 election workers and poll watchers, including some who will, quote, have the confidence and courage To go into black and brown communities to address alleged voter fraud that analyses show does not actually exist. That's what the. That (laughs) was Jessica Corbett reporting for Common Dreams. Um, In other words, they're mobilizing the militias. They're getting white volunteers to go into black and brown neighborhoods to try to intimidate people and try to do what William Rehnquist did in the original Operation Eagle Eye in 1964. This is election fraud. And the Republicans are not only committed to it, they have passed, they have proposed hundreds of laws, they have passed over 100 of them in 19 states now to do just exactly this sort of thing. We need to be calling this out and Democrats need to start screaming about election fraud. In fact, Frank, frankly, they should have been screaming about it ever since 1964, because the Republicans are committing election fraud and then covering it up by saying, oh, we're trying to stop voter fraud. You can get all the details over at uh, HartmanReport.com. Will America look the other way on the GOP's new election police? this is the tom hartman program our book today is the embattled vote in america from the founding to the present by alan j lichtman this is from the introduction titled voters and non-voters on february 18th 1965 advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised african americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of marion alabama part of the state's black belt to protest the jailing of james orange Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal-state effort to reopen cold cases in the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding. Because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day all subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities women and young people the 15th amendment on race the 19th amendment on sex 26th amendment on age are framed negatively stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in america's democratic republic but what they cannot do jimmy lee jackson died one could plausibly argue because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled Southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake in the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues, Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past." since the early republic proponents of a limited vote have waived the banner of voter fraud in earlier times to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers women racial minorities or immigrants today it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation repeat voting voting by non-citizens or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo id laws draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, It was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. just got an email from FreedomWorks. According to the latest reports, Senate Dear Thomas. According to the latest reports, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is planning to force a vote on the radical left's election takeover scheme as early as today. Actually, the vote is now scheduled for 6:30 uh, this afternoon, uh, Eastern Time. And when that effort fails, Senator Schumer will then force a vote to gut the Senate filibuster to give the left the ability to force, this is in all caps, F-O-R-C-E, force their entire radical agenda into law without a single Republican vote. It is urgent that you call your senators now and demand that they vote against any effort to weaken the filibuster. Now, if this group, Freedom Works you know, birthed by the Koch brothers movement, if this group is hysterical, sending out hysterical emails to their members, it's not even a fundraising email saying, please call you, they go on on to say, "Then, then maybe we should be doing the same, right? They go on to say, if the left succeeds, they will immediately move to pass their election takeover scheme to ensure a permanent Democrat majority and open the floodgates to pass the rest of their radical agenda and implement socialism. Massive grassroots pressure is the only way we will stop them. And then and this is where it gets really interesting. Keep in mind, this is the right wing. This is FreedomWorks, right? The, 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 the guys who created the Tea Party. Thanks to massive, massive, thanks to pressure from patriots like you, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have recently made public statements defending the filibuster. But it's not time to take a victory lap just yet. Leftist radicals will continue to hammer Senators mansion and cinema to change their positions at the last minute. And even if they hold firm, it won't matter if weak Republicans like Senator Mitt Romney strike a deal and betray the American people at the last minute. This is why we must absolutely keep the pressure on. Time is running out. Call your senators now. Yes. Sincerely, Adam Brandon, President FreedomWorks. Hmm. Call Mitt Romney, huh? Interesting all righty picking up your phone calls here norris in lincoln county georgia hey norris i was talking to you earlier uh, tell us about it
5: absolutely i I, I heard and i I read the harvard report every day i'm actually i live in north carolina now but i'm from uh lincoln county and so i still stay involved i still get all the emails and texts so we're trying to mobilize and fight this the county commissioner there shout him out walker norman went from democrat to republican when he saw the changing tide And our efforts are almost futile. We're trying, but they're not listening. They're not going to listen. They are going to go ahead and do this. And so I wanted to get your take on, I'm here in North Carolina, and I've had a chance to work with Reverend Barber, work on some local issues here. And um, going back to something I may have heard on on your show some time ago, our impact has to be with Reverend Barber, folk like him, but getting in these folks' pockets. Economic boycott, Noam Chomsky, general strikes. That's the only way we're going to have our voice heard. When we present petitions, when we boycott, when we're in the streets, when we're withholding our labor, that's the only way these folks seem to listen. And I wanted to get your take on it.
1: I don't think that you have a large enough mass of people who are willing to put their jobs at risk to to pull that off, Norris. Um, General strikes typically work where you've got Uh, Say you had a country where if the people could vote, uh, 60, 70 percent of them would vote the bums who are currently in office out and, and bring in another group. But the bums are, you know, have kind of crushed the country. And that's when you get general strikes. That's when you get mass mobilizations in the streets across all the spectrums of society. It's what you're seeing in Belarus right now, for example. Um, I, I just, I've never seen it work here in the United States, the closest we got to it was when I was a teenager, you know, the, the grape boycott in California, which did not hurt the grape growers much at all, you know, economically they did just fine through it, it was just a, a, a great strategy for morally shaming them, so, and, and that took years, and it was a major effort, and it, and it took the sign on of a bunch of people. I, I think that we would have much more, we'd be much more effective rather than trying to boycott any particular thing or, or a general strike, um, particularly during a time like this. I think we would be much more successful just mobilizing voters, getting people out to vote and, and, and building infrastructure around. I mean, if they're going to shut down six out of the seven voting spaces in, in your Lincoln County, Georgia, then, you know, let's, let's and so, so people are going to have to drive 20 miles. A lot of people who don't even have cars are going to have to go 20 miles to vote. Then let's get a bunch of bus- buses down there to transport people. Let's 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 try to you know those kinds of things.
5: And, and I think that's some of the rationale why um, why Latasha Brown and some of the efforts, and Stacey herself did show for for President Biden when he came in. Mm. We know that the voter suppression efforts, as mentioned in the CNN article, we know these efforts and our ability in the past has only created razor-thin margins, which is how Warnock and Ossoff got in, and, they, and Republicans are freaking out because they know they can win with just a little more suppression effort. And so I'm not, you know, I'm still giving my money. I'm still calling. I'm still phone banking. I'm still doing all the things that I want to do. Good but idea. I can't hide my skepticism and, and, and my dismay that, you know, we're watching, you know, this is the Titanic. We're watching, the, we're listening to the fiddlers fiddle.
1: Yeah, as as the iceberg has uh, is upon us, uh, as they say. Yeah, I, I, I am I am with you, Norris, but I, I also am hopeful that as this gets more and more publicity, and certainly this filibuster is giving a hell of a lot of publicity to the fact that the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. That instead of demoralizing people and succeeding in suppressing the vote, which is what happens when it's done quietly and people don't know that other people also showed up and to find that they'd been purged from the list or other people had their vote challenged. But when, when, it gets, you know, when, pub, when publicity happens around it, when there's widespread knowledge of it, when, when there's you know, uh, 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 public examples and public outrage, then you get the, then you get the blowback. And, and frankly, I think the Republican Party is very afraid of that blowback And it's one of the reasons they're trying not to even have this conversation. It's why they tried to filibuster even the debate. And at the very least, Chuck Schumer was masterful in in getting these bills out of the Senate, down to the House, recombined, back to the Senate, which which got it around the filibuster rule about debate. I mean, the Republicans had, had set it up so they're literally, and Mansion and Cinema, and so there literally couldn't even be a debate on it. And Schumer found this arcane, weird rule from, you know, 100 years ago, pulled it out and used it. So we got the debate. And, uh, you know, Norris, keep it up. Thanks so much. It's great to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you in the, in the future. Thanks so much for the great work you're doing and for, for sharing, sharing your story with us. Wow, it's the end of the show. Thank you for being with us today. What a day. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. As much as they're trying to take it away from us, we've got to show up. We've got to double down. We've got to be there for democracy in this nation. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. and Stay safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.